Christ and the establishing of the nation and all of that, really the, the, what comes into focus in chapter 9 is the grace and the faithfulness of God. Solomon is sort of like a, he's a character in the story, but we see God really come clearly stand out in this story because of his grace and his faithfulness. Are you with me? All right, well, let's read the story. First Kings 9, it says this, And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do. Now pause for just a moment. I said this is another summary statement. So Solomon, it says at this moment when he encounters the Lord in this way, it's after he'd finished the temple, which we, that's like recent because we read it in chapter 8. But then it gives, it sort of zooms out and says actually this is a lot later in his life. Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, all of the king's houses, and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do. So it's almost like this is, he's accomplished everything his heart set out to do. He, he's done it. He, I, I've accomplished my desire. And then it says this, verse 2, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to my name, uh, or built, built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel, but... If you or your sons at all turn from following me and don't keep my commandments and my statutes which I have step, set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will answer because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. Let's pause there. We're going to pray and then we'll kind of walk through it. Father, we thank you uh, for these moments that we share. God, we thank you for uh, your presence. Lord, we ask that you would be here this morning, that you would um, meet us right where we're at. Holy Spirit, would you come and transform us from the inside out? Lord, would you give us attention? Would you uh, help us to stay focused and hear from you? Both generally, God, we pray that you would speak to Exchange Church this morning, but also specifically. Lord, that we would walk away here more in love with you, with a deeper desire to walk with you and serve you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. This text shows us what happens when God shows up. Now, Solomon has an encounter with the presence of the Lord after he has finished building the temple. And if you remember in chapter 8, God shows up in a powerful way in that chapter. The temple was filled with his glory, we're told, that the cloud of his presence filled the temple so thick that the priests could no longer do their ministry. 
That's what happens in chapter 8. They build the temple. They bring in the Ark of the Covenant. They begin to worship God. And we're told that the presence of God comes and fills this temple. So much so that the, that the priests have to stop. <laughs> They're overwhelmed by the presence of God. Basically, they get out of the way and God just does what he does. The, the presence of God shows up. This time, God shows up in a personal way to meet with Solomon. And I, and I want us to see that distinction. That in the previous chapter, God shows up in a powerful, dramatic, very obvious way. It's the temple. Everyone can see it. The cloud of the glory is there. It's like, wow, this is happening. God is doing something. And then in this chapter, in the quiet, in a personal way, God encounters Solomon. And when God encounters Solomon, I want us to see three things that sort of happen as he encounters God in a personal way. And I believe that not only is this true for Solomon when we read this in chapter 9, but this is, I think, the what God tends to do when he shows up in a personal way in our life. The first thing he sa- we see is that he proclaims his word. God, when he shows up and encounters Solomon in this private way, God proclaims his word. I'll read it again, verse 1. It says, it came to pass when Solomon finished uh, that the Lord appeared to him, verse 2. And then verse 3, and the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And then he goes on and he makes this, this sort of blessing and cursing, if you will. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But he makes this distinction. But this, this section of God speaking is actually the third time Solomon would have heard this. This isn't the first time God says something like this. This is the third time. So God shows up privately. God speaks to Solomon personally and he proclaims his word. <laughs> He says what he's already said. God speaks a promise based upon his word to Solomon. And this promise is given up by God about the temple specifically and then his people generally. The the promise, though, that we read about is based upon the character of God. We're going to see that God gives conditions to walking in the benefit of the promise. But the promises of God are always based upon the character of God. The promises of God are always based upon the character of God. And we can trust that God does what he says because his character shows us that he does what he says. Are you with me? We can trust God's promises. Why? Well, not because the promises are like make sense logically. Not because when God speaks a word, we're like, okay, I can see how you're going to make that happen. No, God's promises we can trust because of the character of God. Because of what God has done. And not just because of what he's done, but because of who he is, we can trust what he's yet to do. And so God shows up and he speaks a promise. And his promise is not going to be dependent upon Solomon. It's not going to be dependent upon the nation of Israel. The promises of God are dependent upon the character of God. And we know that God's character never changes. There's no shadow of turning. All of his promises are yes and amen because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God shows up and he speaks his word. He gives a promise to Solomon. And we see in this promise a couple of things. This promise shows us that God's people are heard. When, so- when God shows up to Solomon in, th- in this moment, it shows to us that God's 
promises, when, he promises that God's people are heard. God's response in chapter 9 is a fulfillment to Solomon's prayer from chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 30, he says it like this. Solomon speaking to God. He says, And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray towards this place, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. That's Solomon's prayer. He basically says, God, hear my prayer. That's his prayer, right? I'm praying that, God, you would hear me pray. And then God shows up. This is his response. I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. God answers the prayer of Solomon. His prayer is that God would hear him. And he answers and says, I've heard you. I've listened to your supplication. I've heard what you've prayed. Can I encourage you that we can have confidence that when we pray, God hears us. We can have confidence. Not only does he hear us, but he answers us. Now, I can't explain to you how our prayers move the hand of God. I also can't explain why some prayers seemingly go unanswered. But I can confidently tell you that there's an invitation for every person to go boldly to our Heavenly Father with our prayers and trust that he hears and he answers. I, I, I don't want to, I can't get into all of the how. <laughs> all I know is that there's an invitation for the follower of Jesus to go boldly to the throne of God and we find grace and mercy and he hears us. So do we pray? How often do we pray? Sometimes we don't pray because we think we're just talking to ourselves. You ever feel like that? Like I, I tend to talk to myself a lot. Like I was driving down here by myself and I was literally talking to myself. I was talking out loud about a song I was listening to, like, oh, this is a great, I literally said at one point, this is a great album, out loud, driving down here this morning. Um, no, my wife wasn't there to validate or disagree. It was just, this is a great album. I, I re was rehearsing some of the points of the message this morning, talking out loud, and sometimes we spend a lot of times talking out loud to ourselves, or maybe with internal dialogue with ourselves. And sometimes it's hard to differentiate between when we're talking to ourselves and when we're talking to God. And sometimes we, we maybe think we're praying, but we're not praying. We're actually just talking to ourselves. But we need to recognize that there is something that happens when we, when we lift our eyes or when we, when we, when we, when we begin to communicate to God. He invites us into prayer and he hears us. But we have an invitation to communicate to God about anything from anywhere. And we have confidence based upon his character that he hears us. This promise also shows us that God's people are consecrated. God speaks to Solomon and tells him that he has consecrated this building. Consecrate means to set apart. The temple specifically, we're told, is set apart. It's different. But the temple isn't unique. It's a building built by people. It was built with human tools, human resources, and craftsmanship. Now, it was a magnificent building. In fact, it's, it's considered to be one of the ancient wonders of the world. But like every other ancient building, it was built and it was eventually destroyed. What makes this temple set apart 
The reason God says, I have consecrated this building, what makes it different, what makes it consecrated, is that God's presence dwelt there. What made it set apart wasn't its distinction as a building, although it was unique as a building. What made it set apart was his presence filling the temple. And because God's presence was there, it was a place that people could encounter God. They could have sins atoned for. And it was a message to the world of salvation. This building became set apart because God's presence was there. And this promise is the same that God makes his people set apart. The promise to the follower of Jesus is that, like the temple, they are marked and sealed with the presence of God. You are called to know him, to walk with him, and to participate with him, proclaiming salvation to the world. You are called by God. You are the temple of the living God, filled with his Holy Spirit, and called to be set apart unto him. That just like this temple, he says, I have consecrated it. I've set it apart. I've made it different. The promise of the follower of Jesus is that when you're filled with his spirit, when you're, when you're saved by his grace, you become set apart. You're different. And you're called out, you're called by God, like the temple, to be a, a display, to be a, a, a sign to the world that salvation is available. And this promise shows us that God's people are set apart. And then the third thing I want us to see from God speaking this promise is that it also shows us that God's people belong to his family. I love verse 3. It says, to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. This verse really struck me in my reading. God places his name on his people. God shares his name with us. I went to a small private Christian school in middle school until I was asked not to come back. I wasn't expelled. They didn't use that language, but they just were like, it'd be best if you just didn't come back. So I left in seventh grade, and I didn't come back. Um, But I remember sitting in the principal's office one of many times, and the principal telling me that going to school here means that I, when I leave here, I represent the school. I remember sitting there in the chair and looking at him, Dr. Powell, he comes to our church now, and he's so sweet, and I'm like, this is such a weird, and I I called him Dr. Powell the other day, and he's like, please, call me Grant. I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. Um... But uh, I remember sitting there in the principal's office and him saying, when you leave the school, even though you're not at school, you still represent Master's Academy. You're a student here and you represent the school. And and they were telling me this because they were nervous and embarrassed. Like, you, please, please. (laughs) And I think think sometimes we, we maybe assume that God thinks of it us like that. Because God places his name on us. God, God puts us as a part of his family. We, we share his name. He brings us in. And, and he promises that this, will be, that this will be placed on his people forever. And I think there's a, there isn't this like shame or embarrassment from God. Like, oh man. Oh, that mine. I, I don't know that one. Right? Like, it's not like that. But God, he, he invites us in. He shares his name. That, but with that goes, okay, how do we represent him? Because I think there's the reality for every follower of Jesus. Because we share his name, we do represent him. 
if we publicly in any way, shape, or form identify as a follower of Jesus, if people know us in any way, whether we're very vocal about it or they just know we go to church on Sunday, sometimes, whatever the case, we represent Christ. So the question is not if we represent him. The question then is how do we represent him? Are we a good representation of Christ? But he places his name on us as we've been adopted into his family. And not only does he share the name, but he also says that his eyes and heart will be there. Meaning we can be known completely and we can be loved deeply by God. He isn't ashamed. So the first thing that happens when God's presence shows up is that he proclaims his name. The second thing, or uh, yeah, proclaims his name. The second thing, or his word. The second thing is he invites us to participate. So when God's presence meets with us personally, he always proclaims his word. He's going to speak his word. But then secondly, he invites us to participate. Now the temple is supposed to be a place for God's presence, for sins to be atoned for, a sign to the world of the relationship that they can have with Yahweh. But in order for that to happen, people must walk with God. In the second part of these verses, God places a condition on the blessing. Now this doesn't change the promise. I need us to understand this. This doesn't change the promise, nor does it change the result. But the benefit, this is the key, the benefit of walking in the promise is based upon our participation, right? So the promise isn't going to change, and we'll see that. I mean, history tells us that the promise from Yahweh to his people about what he's going to do both in their life, through their land, and through their nation is not going to change, The promise doesn't change, but the benefit to the individual of walking in the promise is based upon their participation. He gives a promise. The promise brings a blessing when you walk in obedience, and it brings a curse when you walk in disobedience. And by curse, we mean a a consequence for disobedience. And he tells Solomon how they are to participate in order to experience the blessing. I'll read it again. Look, he says in verse, uh, he says, verse four, now if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised your father David, saying you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But, and then he gives the sort of same but reverse. He tells Solomon how they are to participate in order to experience the blessing. The first thing he says is walk like David. Walk like David. Now, not to maybe criticize David too much, but it's a pretty kind of low bar that's been set. Right? Like, just walk like David. And you're like, okay, well, what did David do? Well, he was a murderer. He was an adulterer. <laughs> you're like, geez, Louise, I guess. But it's deeper than that. Because God's covenant with David is not based upon his 
specific actions. And we see there was consequences to David's specific actions. Now, we know David is the second king of Israel. He's the king that was promised to be the patriarch of the hereditary monarchy. He was also a worship leader, songwriter, a victorious warrior, and a man after God's heart. He's also the, the one that's line would bring Jesus into the world, but he's a man of struggle and of failure. But he followed God with his whole heart. And we were told that over and over, both in the old and in the new, that David was a man after after God's heart. And we're told really practically what that looks like. I love this verse because it says, walk like David. And I can, I can hear myself asking the question, how did David walk? What, what does that mean? And then he tells us, the first thing, he walked with integrity of heart. Walk like your father David with integrity of heart. The idea is completeness of heart, meaning his whole heart was devoted to to God. He had a love for God and an intimate relationship with God. David would write things like, search me, O God, and know my heart. He would say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell with the wicked. He would say, a day in God's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He would say, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. The list goes on and on. The point is that integrity of heart comes from intimacy with God. What does our time with God look like? Would you describe it as an intimacy with God? We develop integrity of heart through our intimacy with God, and that happens through prayer, through reading God's word, turning off distractions, being alone with God. Integrity, wholeness, completeness of heart comes as we're intimate, as we're close, as we have relationship with God. And he says that we are to walk like David. Well, what does that look like? Well, it means we're going to have an intimate, close relationship with God. But then it also says not only integrity of heart, but uprightness. This idea is straightness or rightness. It speaks of doing what is right. If integrity of heart is intimacy with God, this would speak of activity for God. Integrity of heart, intimacy with God, time with God. Uprightness would speak of activity for God. David was a man of prayer and praise. He was a man of the quiet and of waiting, but he was also a man of action. He was victorious in battle. He led the nation. He couldn't build the temple, but he made all the preparations for Solomon to build the temple. He was a man that not only loved God with his heart, but he served God with his life. To, to be someone that walks like David, to be committed to God, is someone that's intimate, that has close relationship with Jesus, that knows the quiet place, that knows the Word of God, that knows what it's like to be alone with God, to allow Him to minister to us personally and privately. But to be a person that walks like David also means that we serve God with our life. That we look for opportunities to make his name known. We look for opportunities to love and serve the people around us. That, that it's not just a, a quiet that nobody knows about. It's not that we just live in the secret place. But the secret place then leads us to the public place. Are you with me? That, that, that we spend time with God that then allows, that, that shapes us and forms us so that we can go out into our world and be the people that God's called us to be. We should have intimate relationship with Jesus, but that, that should lead to activity where we serve him with our lives. 
He says, walk like David with integrity of heart and uprightness. And then he says, second thing, remember, this is participation. God's presence is here. He, he speaks his word, and then he invites into participation. Participation through uh, intimacy, through relationship. And then the second thing he says, do what I command. Do what I command. And notice he says to do all that I command. This is one of the big errors of Solomon. He did some of what God commanded him to do. And this led to difficulty and mistakes. Another summary statement of Solomon is found in 1 Kings 11. It says this, Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And it says this, and his wives turned away his heart. This is like the chicken or the egg type situation. Was his heart turned so he had 1,000 wives? Or did he have 1,000 wives that turned his heart? Are you with me? Like you've got, you can't be completely devoted to God and know his word if you're like, do you know what? I need 700 girlfriends. <laughs> but you're like, eh. you're missing something. Right, so it kind of says like they led his heart away, but it seems like he was led away and they led him away. Whatever the case, he lacked an obedience to all God commanded. How good are we at picking and choosing what we obey? There are some things we love to do, right? The introverts of the room love the command to pray, to be alone with God, and to privately worship him. Right? We're like, yes, that's my calling. My calling is the secret place. Just me and God. But we don't like the thought of that leading to activity for God. Meaning, wait, I have to interact with people? I have to, I have to love people that I don't like? I have to step out of my comfort zone? I'm good. I'll stay in the secret place and I'll just love the intimacy. No, they're, 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 we're called to obey all of the commands. Or, or maybe there's things we struggle with. We know it's wrong, but we do it anyways. We avoid certain verses or conversations or setting because we know we will feel convicted for ignoring the word of God. There's commands we know. We're like, I'm just going to, just not going to think about that one. Right? Because, the, but the, the call is not just obedience to select portions the things that are easy for us, that come naturally based upon our, our personality or our interest or, or, or what we're good at, but allowing God's word to shape our whole life and to submit ourselves to be obedient to the sum, to all that God commands. So he says we got to keep all the commands. And then the third thing he says, he says, keep my statutes. And we keep his statutes simply when we know his word. I think most of us would say we have a desire to love God and to serve God and even obey him. And I think the problem for some is that we don't actually know what God wants us to be doing. We find that out. We hear from him when we spend time with him in his word. I, I like the language of keeping the commandments or keeping the statutes. It speaks of holding on to Keeping it, it speaks of, uh, of things that we love and cherish. And the more we love and cherish something, the closer we keep it, right? 
The, the, when, we, when we love something, we keep it. We hold on to it. We don't, we, we don't let it out of our sight. Just keep my statutes. Now again, the commandments end with a blessing if you keep them. And then we're told a curse if you disobey. And all of this speaks to the benefit of walking in the promise of God. Because the blessing, uh, the blessing is God establishing the throne forever. The curse is that he will cut off Israel from the land. The house will be destroyed. And we know from Israel's history that this is what happens, right? The temple is destroyed. The, the people are taken into exile. The, the, the kings turn from God. It's, we know what happens. But the promise of God doesn't change. The promise that the Messiah would still come through David and Solomon's line doesn't change because they failed to obey the commandments. Does that make sense? What, what they missed out on, what the, what the nation of Israel missed out on throughout their history is the benefit of walking obedient to God. They still experience God's plans and God's promises coming about. Right? Here we are today in South Florida worshiping Jesus because through David and Solomon's line, a Messiah came that would be the Savior of the whole world. That promise never changed. That promise wasn't based upon or dependent upon the actions and the behavior of the people. What the people missed out on was the benefit of walking in the promise of God. And so the invitation or what we are, uh, when God's presence shows up, we are then invited to participate, to walk with, to experience the benefit of walking in his promises. All right, for third and final thing um, is this. He calls us to personal commitment. He calls us to personal commitment. Now again, chapter 8, God shows up in a powerful way. In chapter 9, God shows up in a personal way. And when God shows up, his word is proclaimed. He invites us to participate with him. And then he calls us to personal commitment. And I think this is true whenever we gather in his name. This is probably like a theme of what church and oftentimes looks like. Right? His word is proclaimed. He invites us to participate with him. And then there's a call to personal commitment or deeper personal commitment. This is sort of like, it's kind of like a look in the playbook of a pastor or like the church experience, right? It's like God's word. There's an invitation to participate and there is a call to personal commitment. Now, I want us to see this in uh, sort of the end of the chapter. In verse 10 through 14, Solomon exchanges gifts with the king of Tyre. And then in 15 through 28, we see some of the other buildings and achievements of Solomon. Remember, at the beginning, it was a summary statement. It says that Solomon completed all that he desired to do. And then we were told about this one specific encounter with God. And then from the end of the chapter, it kind of zoom, or like rewinds in his life and hits some of the major things that he did. And I want to know a couple things in these verses. Look at verse 15. It says this, And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazar, Megiddo, and Gezer. These are all of the, the cities and the buildings that he built. 
And then in verse 18, it says, And Solomon built Gezer, Lower Beth Haran, Baloth, Tadmar, in the wilderness in the land of Judah. And then in verse 19, it says, All the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots, cities for his cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. There's another verse that talks about how he built not only his palace, but a palace for his Egyptian wife that he married as really a political move with the nation of Egypt. So he built himself a palace. He built himself a summer vacation home in the wilderness of Lebanon. He built himself entire cities for his chariots um, and his uh, cavalry. Um, And then he built a second palace for his Egyptian wife. So we just kind of get like the summary of what that verse, beginning verse said. Are you guys with me? Does that make sense? So all of that to say, this section shows us Solomon's wealth and success, right? It's kind of like, okay, this is what Solomon, all of his heart desired to do, and this is what he did. Here's the point I want to make. Solomon succeeded material, but de- materially, but declined spiritually, And we know with Solomon, he didn't just drift from God. A lot of people drift from God. A lot of people allow other things to get in the way and distract and and cause where we're one point so close. We felt so close. We're hearing from God. We felt this call. we, We felt connected. And then over time, we just begin to drift based upon decisions or relationships and things cause us to drift from our relationship with God. That is not necessarily the case for Solomon. Solomon pursued other things. He wasn't just a slow drift. He was in all-out pursuit of other things. We know that because it's all recorded for us in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Where he pursued wealth and he, he pursued pleasure and he pursued relationships and he pursued power and all of these things that, that it caused this, this decline in his relationship with God. He didn't just drift from God. He pursued other things. And as a result of that, he introduced idolatry to the nation, He pursued material, relational, and physical pleasure, and he modeled polygamy and disobedience to God's word for the people. Right? That's kind of what you're left with. And yet, he continued to acquire wealth, influence, and recognition. So there's this declining spiritually that's happening, and then there's this, this growth, this success materially that's happening. This should challenge us in at least two ways. Number one is how do we define success? Is success purely measured by material gain? Or is it measured in obedience and faithfulness to God? I think as a, as a victim of the culture that we live in, it's very easy for us to define success in a, in a certain way, right? It's like where we've traveled to, how m- much square footage we have in our house, like how many vacation days do we have? Do you also have the boat? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, oh, wow, that person's successful. Well, they have the vacation days in the boat. And so it's, it's we, ha- we kind of, and as, as, as much as we want to like keep that away, it's, it's really integrated into the way we think. And we far too often focus on the wrong things as a marking for success. 
And our lives, success should be defined by our personal commitment to God, to his word, and to his ways. That our life should, should be successful as we, as we grow spiritually, not decline. But then the second thing, that this, the way that this should challenge us, is that God's promises remain even when people reject. Ending where we began, God began with a promise. The promise would not change upon what he, but what people did. He will hear his people. He will establish the throne of David forever. And he will put his name on his people. Right? That promise is secure. It's not changing. God's promises are always based upon his character. But we listen, we benefit from the promise when we walk in obedience and commitment to him. There's an invitation for all of us. There's a call for each and every one of us to personal commitment to relationship with God. A personal commitment, not based upon the people that we know, not based upon what we've experienced in the past, not based upon our, our preconceived ideas of what it looks like. A personal commitment where it's you and your relationship with Jesus. Call for each and every one for personal commitment. And that personal commitment should, should excel as we walk with God, as we live our days on earth. <laughs> I, I, there's so many people in our church. Um, Vero Beach, I'm sure many of you guys know, is, is I, there's a lot of retired. There's a lot of like, you know, sort of end of seasons of life. So our church is filled with a lot of retired people that have been very successful and things like that. And I, I had a meeting with a guy just uh, this week, uh, and uh, he, he filled out a ministry application. He wants to serve in our youth ministry. He's, I think, 80-something years old, and he came and met with me like, hey, I want to serve in youth ministry. And I'm like, great, well, wh- what do you want to do? And he's like, well, I've got, I, I have his uh, like resume written down. I should have brought it up here. But basically, he's got his master's in like, something engineering and his PhD and something else. I'm like, I don't know. I got kicked out of middle school. Like, I <laughs> and uh, he, he like gave all of his credentials and he's like, I worked for uh, the FBI. I was, a, I was a, um, a, what was the word he used? Gosh, it was so cool. It's just cool words that you're like, I've only heard that on Jason Bourne and it's like <laughs> pretty impressive. But uh, he, uh, he was a consultant for like, for nuclear energy and all of this stuff. And he's like, I just, he's like, I'm really good at math and science. I'm like, it seems like it. And he's like, I would just love to be available for students to tutor and to help and to disciple them in that way. And he's like, I spent my whole life doing this. I'm retired now. And he's like, and I just want to love God and I want to serve others. And he's like, I can do it from first grade all the way through 12th grade, however I can help. And I just think like that is a, that is a sign of, of spiritual growth as you step closer and closer into eternity, right? It's, there's not a decline. He's not retired and foot off the gas. I'm just going to hang out. But there's what can I do? How can I grow? How can I use what God has given me? And I think that is when I have conversations like that, I'm like, Lord, I want that to be my life. Like, even if, even if material success, even if I don't have any of it, I want to be a person that's as closer I get to eternity with a more of a love for God and his people, that there's growth along the way. Listen, God's promises are the same. God's promises never change. And there's an invitation for each and every one of us to participate in what he's doing.
And it comes from personal commitment as we dedicate ourselves, our lives, both publicly and privately into relationship with Jesus, allowing him to transform us from the inside out and making us more and more useful to his kingdom and more of his glory and grace shown through our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for the life and the example of, of Solomon for so many reasons. Lord, we thank you for his, uh, his commitment to serving you and, and the word. Um, but Lord, we also thank you as an example of things we want to watch out for. And Lord, we don't want to sort of slow down as we stop or as, as, our, as we get older or as we complete tasks and things like that. Lord, we want to grow and mature more and more into the person of Jesus, more like your son. We thank you, God. And Lord, I pray if there's any here that have never made a personal commitment to you, maybe they've, they've been around it or maybe they are here by association, family or friends. Lord, I want to thank you that the invitation is for all of us personally to know you, to be transformed by you. And so, God, I pray for, for anyone like that, that even now that they would begin to commit themselves, cry out to Jesus, and thank you, Lord, that you hear us. We love you, Lord. Be glorified in our worship and our service and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.